Hey, just as a warning, this episode contains some freakishly disturbing content. But I mean, it is called Rising Up from the Ashes of the Children of God Cult, Firewalk with Levy Eden, which I stole from Twin Peaks, love ya, David Lynch. Like, when you clicked on this episode, what did you think was going to happen? Did you think we were going to sit by a campfire and hold hands and toast marshmallows and get our kumbayayas out? This story is serious business. And by the way, it's not censored. If you think it might be a little much for you, that's totally okay. I recommend turning off my podcast, walking outside, and maybe going to a bakery to get a cupcake or scone or something delicious, and just sitting outside with it. Otherwise, enjoy! Welcome to my podcast, Olivia Eden. Thank you for having me. So tell me your story. What is Children of God? So the Children of God was an international religious sex cult. It was also a very well-known missionary organization. It just depends on who you talk to. I think as with anything in life, there is always multiple ways of looking at something. So for the more negative connotation, sensationalized part of the group I was raised in, it was well known as a religious sex cult. And then for the people who saw a different side, it was a missionary organization that was dedicated to tell people about Jesus and give people light and hope. That's an interesting description for someone who grew up and survived it. Sounds like you might see some positives in it. Can you elaborate on that for me? Absolutely. I definitely like to start off all of my interviews and podcasts with a disclaimer, which is that I really don't view myself as a victim. It's been a long road to get here. I don't even use the term survival. I prefer overcoming. I prefer perseverance and grit and resilience, which create superhuman strengths and enable us to get through massive adversity. And what's more is that it helps us to see the perfection of everything that has happened in our life, even the really difficult parts. So yeah, just like with everything in life, there is light and dark and good and bad, challenging and really strengthening and positive experiences that came from my upbringing. That's incredible. Before we continue, are there any other words you want me to avoid besides survival, survivor, victim? Just are there any words you want me to stay away from? You don't have to stay away from any of those terms. That's just like the state of consciousness that I'm in now on the other side. It's just the very opposite of that. But I validate and honor every single person where they are in their journey. And so if they still haven't resolved or healed the part of them that feels like a victim, that's totally okay. I definitely was there. At this point in time, I consider myself to be massively privileged for what I've gone through. I wouldn't change a single second of my life. So feel free to use whatever terms you want. That's really incredible, especially because you grew up in it. Can you tell me about your childhood? What was that like? So you were born into this group. So I was born and raised in the Children of God. I was born in Ecuador to a single mom. I have an older sister who was born in Mexico and then another little sister who was born in Texas. So we traveled around a lot. Our group was in 20 different countries. We had more than 100,000 members, and each city that we were in had their own autonomous centers. So we called them homes, but they were basically communes where everyone was volunteer missionaries. Nobody had an actual job. Just one of the most fascinating parts about this group is that each intentional community was autonomous, responsible to support itself, but nobody had an actual job. 
So it was interesting how we just made those homes run with like 100 to 150 people. So we traveled around a lot as a kid. I lived in Ecuador. I was born there. And then we lived in Texas for a bit and then Central America. And my childhood, it depended on which home you were in because each home had its own governing structure as well that was voted upon by the members. So depending on which home you were in, you had a vastly different experience. It's like moving from one corporation to the next. Sometimes the leadership is ethical and they have integrity of power. And then other times it's just absolutely corrupt and they abuse power. So I experienced the entire gamut of leadership all across the spectrum of good to bad. I have really good childhood memories of living in Dallas when we lived in a big ranch with 150 people. It was a really well-run home where we learned how to read when I was three, four years old. They were constantly pouring into the kids, so we were divided by age groups. So we would have like 30 kids in my age group, for instance, and we'd all sleep together. And we had one or two adults that would sleep in the rooms with us. Our parents would sleep usually in another part of the home. And everyone had their defined roles that were voted upon. So some people were in charge of the kitchen. Some people were in charge of the finances. Some people were in charge of provisioning, which meant that they would go out and ask people to donate to our home. So we would get food donated. We'd get clothes donated. We actually lived technically by faith, just praying and hoping that God would provide for everyone. So it was pretty interesting. I remember getting taught practical life skills, how to clean, how to cook, how to do carpentry work. So it was very stimulating for a little kid's mind. Like you're constantly learning. You're around a bunch of other kids your age. And there was an overwhelming amount of love and collaboration and teamwork in that home specifically. So that was one of my really good memories. When the cult leader died, I was six years old and his wife took over. She restructured the group and she renamed it the family because the children of God had such a notorious name attached to it. And we were pretty infamous all around the world. Do you have any memories of the male leader? And if so, can you describe him to me? And what was your relationship with him like? So very few people had a relationship with him. He went into hiding right after the FFing practice stopped, which was the practice of flirty fishing. That ended in like the mid-1980s. Berg's daughter, Faithy, ends up evangelizing in Libya. While explaining the love of Jesus to a devout Muslim, she somehow ends up in bed with the man. Of course, I had never, ever had sex with anybody that um, I wasn't married to. And I had never had sex <clears throat> with anybody that was um, what I would consider a heathen. <laughs> Guilt-ridden, Faithy immediately calls her father, who has already been in touch with the Almighty. And then my father said, why, it's exactly the same day we got this prophecy. We called the flirty fish. And he said, why, it's amazing. He said, this is exactly what God was revealing to us, that there, there would be instances in which we would have to portray God's love in a physical way, and that there was nothing wrong with it. Berg's vision seems divinely inspired. What else but sex could save souls and feel so good all at the same time? He came out on the front of the Time magazine with all of his flirty fishes, which were technically religious prostitutes. That was the last picture that was ever taken of him. He went into hiding after that and no one knew where he lived. So there were these centers that controlled all of the homes all around the world. They were called WS, World Services Centers, and no one knew where they were. One of my really close friends grew up with him and experienced life being groomed as his child bride. For many years, David always said that a man could have two wives. That it was according to the Bible that it wasn't wrong to have two wives. But I, in my mind, I said, well, I hope it never happens to me. But I knew when he was traveling around, you know, that he wasn't totally uh, faithful to one wife, you know. So she had a very, very, very different experience from a lot of the other kids that were in the group because she was directly under his corrupt ego that just completely took a turn for the worst from the time that he started the group. 
So I never met him. We always saw him on as like a, a lion. They would draw cartoons of him and depict him as a lion and they would call him Moses David. Say hello, children. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. God bless you. Hello. Praise the Lord. Well, the children have some more stories and lessons to share with you. And my, don't they look nice today? Thank you, Jesus. We had no idea how he looked other than that because they redacted every publication that ever came out that had a picture of him. So you never met him, but someone in your group was groomed to be his child, right? So he also lived in a commune, like the world services were also communes. They had really beautiful mansions in Tenerife, but only the people that lived in those homes met him and experienced him. But that's also where he rolled out pedophilia. There was a lot of dark, corrupt stuff that happened directly underneath him that didn't necessarily reach all over the world to the different homes that we were in. <clears throat> all right. questions I want to ask you. I'll start with, so he had cartoons made of him. What other pieces of propaganda did the cult show you? Were there cartoons? Were there stories? Was the Bible modified if you used a Bible? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so that is actually how he reached the group, was that we would receive publications every single month. They were divided into age groups. So there were some that were for the little kids, middle kids, older kids, teenagers, and then the adults. They would come out in books, magazines, tapes, videos, CDs. I mean, everything you can imagine. So we had all the publications from them. And then it got more advanced as time went on. Reach out to you by the impulse of love. 
would have people writing novels. This magazine that we would call the zine that had the news from everybody all over the world so we could see what people were doing in Africa or India. There was a lot of modifications of the Bible. So there were kids' books, kids' videos that had Bible stories in them that were interpreted by the family or the children of God. And we would sell those. We would go out and that's how we would typically fundraise for our homes was by selling videos, tapes, and posters to people that had our messages on it. How did people from the outside world respond to you and your should I call them brothers, sisters, friends, children, also in your group? What would be the best way to describe them? We were called the family. The adults in our home were aunts and uncles. And yeah, we were brothers and sisters. We were all supposed to be a big family. The children do say they've never had any sexual experiences with adults or other children. But they become extremely agitated when we ask them about Moses David Berg's teachings on sex. My Little Fish. Now, your father described that as a routine publication. That entails uh, graphic sex. Who had this? I'm not having sex. I'm just kissing and hugging in bed. That's not sex. April is very upset that 2020 has obtained a copy of My Little Fish. Ex-members tell us the cult leaders say it should be kept secret. If you show it to other people, they don't understand. That stuff's not supposed to be publicized. So many people hate. So many people think sex is wrong. So many people hate us. But we're just telling them the truth. We're just telling them it's not wrong. We're just telling them that there's nothing wrong with them. And here comes these publicizers doing them to everybody, making everybody think it's wrong. This is printed and circulated. But why do you it's need it? You don't need it. It's not a private. It's printed and widely circulated around the world. You're not supposed to have it. So I would say that people responded to us very well because since we were little kids, we were taught how to sing and perform and dance. And they would take us to businesses, to schools, to hospitals, to Kmarts, to Walmarts, to all of these big shopping centers. And we would perform and sing and dance. Dad, after all, we've strayed. not going to love little kids dancing and performing. So it was always an overwhelming positive response. And then they would buy from us. So we learned how to sell. I remember selling my first tracks and posters when I was like three or four years old. And then it was just like every weekend from then on. I think the leader realized that we were a very powerful tool for making money for these homes. So he ended up going into hiding and his wife took over. Can you tell me about her? Can you describe her to me? What was she like and what was your relationship with her like? And also, how did she impact your relationship with your biological mother and your biological siblings? So we called her Mama Maria. She was quite a bit younger than the cult leader, but she was his wife. Imbued with the spirit of the Lord, Berg emerges noisily from his camper. He is wrapped in chains. So he stands in front of everybody, stops comes to stop and uh, he goes looks at everybody very seriously goes this is what the system marriage will do to you and then he said something like but Jesus is going to set us free and he throws the chains off so everybody goes hallelujah thank you Lord newly liberated Berg receives another revelation out with the old in with the new he drops his ever faithful wife Jane and takes up with his 19-year-old secretary, Maria. So she became his predecessor. I think she had a much cleaner, purer vision for the group. She abolished pedophilia after he died. 
She restructured the whole group. She downsized the big communes from 150 to maximum of 35 people because she realized that it was impossible to supervise the home properly when there was that many people. And people were getting hurt because there was just too many people. So with 35 people, it was much more manageable. The kids were safer. She created a lot more, I think, structure and rules. So I think she actually did quite a bit of good for the group. She came in and did a bunch of damage control after David Brantberg died. So that was good. So then it became more of a missionary organization. I think she still maybe maintained some older practices of separating families at different times, but I wouldn't say that she affected my relationship with my mom. Again, she also lived in hiding. So it wasn't until after I was like 15 or 16 years old and had come back from running away in Guatemala that I actually met her, but it was a very rare occasion. Hardly anybody had met her and still to this day has not met her. It was imperative that they stayed in hiding because of lots of different things, tax evasion, and they had so many illegal allegations made towards them. So they had to be really careful. So you ran away at 15? I ran away at 15 in Guatemala after I graduated high school. So we had a pretty fast-tracked educational system so you could go as quickly as you wanted. And I was always really eager to get out. From the time my sister left, I became pretty rebellious and strong-headed since I was 11 years old, I think I can remember. Just having a lot of anger and really following in my older sister's footsteps, who also was just really smart and asking a lot of questions all the time and just couldn't obey blindly, which got us into a lot of trouble. So she ended up leaving when she was 17. And after that, I was determined to also leave. I really wanted my freedom. But I was only 15 and a minor. And so I would have had to have told my mom and she would have had to leave the group. And I realized that she was happy as a missionary, like she loved children and she loved teaching. And especially in Guatemala, we did a lot of work with the orphanages. So I knew she was happy. She loved Jesus and she wanted to serve him. So I just figured like in my grown adolescent brain that this was the best idea. So I was just going to leave in the middle of the night. And I ended up doing that. Does not surprise me. I can picture 15-year-old you getting out of bed in the middle of the night and going, I'm not staying here, just from the little I know about you. Not surprising. So let's rewind a little bit. Can you describe the nature of the abuse you endured during your childhood? What age did it start? And what did you see happen to others? And also, did anyone try to stop it from happening? So there's many, many forms of abuse. The ACE test clearly identifies the big T traumas that can affect children and create dysfunction and turmoil later on in life. Then there's also the bad things that shouldn't have happened that did, and then the good things that should have happened that didn't. Across that spectrum, there's a lot of different forms of abuse, a lot of which people don't know about, like spanking. Spanking is a big marker for trauma that can affect especially boys, but it does affect girls too. So that was the corporal punishment that was really initiated in the group with the children. And it was always different depending on how big the adult was or how small they were. If it was a petite woman or if it was a big 300-pound man, you were going to get a vastly different spanking that could leave massive bruises or just you know barely hurt you definitely did not want to get out of line because the discipline was really harsh they also put kids on silence restriction so they couldn't talk for a few months if they lied or were disobedient so that was really difficult The way that they would make us fundraise in different homes was really tough, especially as young girls going out in really dangerous countries by ourselves and essentially begging at the stoplights for money, which is what it devolved into at a certain point. Hey guys and gals, get hip with a new craze. Register today for your very own personal 666 barcode implant. No more need to carry cash or credit cards. The price of the goods you buy is now automatically subtracted from your bank account by the computer terminal at the checkout stand. It's fast. It's easy. Don't go, Kathy. Don't go. Don't go, please. Don't go. Don't go, Kathy. Don't go. Don't go, please. Don't go. Kathy, don't go to the supermarket today. 
subtracted from your bank account by the computer terminal at the checkout stand. It's fast. It's easy. There was sexual abuse that happened. It was just a very sexually infused culture. So we knew about sex from when we were really little, which really blurred the lines with a lot of people. It's like there's all this sexual tension going on all the time. We know that all the adults are having sex with each other. So then you, at a certain age, you just want to practice it. And then there's this age difference. So a lot of times the older adults would be really inappropriate with the younger kids. And so that happened. I personally experienced a lot more sexual trauma when I ran away in Guatemala. But yeah, I mean, having to leave different homes because they didn't want you in the home anymore and they could vote you out was really, really tough. Like having to pack your bags in the middle of the night and move and not having any money. Constantly feeling this feeling of impermanence, like you could just have your whole life changed and ripped out from you from one moment to the next was really challenging. But if you talk to someone who grew up in Brazil, they'll have a very different story if you talk to someone in Japan. So depending on which home you grew up in, you're going to have a vastly different experience. And depending on how long you lived under the reign of David Brentberg, who was the initial leader, as opposed to just under Mama Maria, you were also going to have a very, very, very different experience. How many homes did these two people have collectively in how many countries? Is that even measurable? So we had homes in 120 different countries and we had over 100,000 members. So just dividing that many members into the homes, you could probably figure it out. I don't know exactly how many, but thousands, thousands of homes. Yeah. Okay. I do have some questions about the abuse, of course. But I have to ask first, how are they able to get so many people involved in their group? What do you think was so alluring about these two people or their mission? I wouldn't say that Mama Maria was directly involved in recruitment. So it started in 1969 on the tail end of the hippie movement. So after the hippie movement followed the Jesus Revolution and many cults arose from that time in 1969, that year specifically, there were quite a few cults that started with people just getting super turned on to spirituality and to Jesus. The hippies were opening their mind with psychedelics, which was creating this drive to seek for something outside of themselves for like the answers or meaning or purpose. And some people found it through Jesus, some people found it through Hare Krishna, some people found it through Buddhism. But there was a huge movement of hippies towards Jesus. And David Remberg was at the right place at the right time. He was the son of an evangelical minister. So he started preaching at nightclubs. He completely turned his back on the church and was like, there has to be a better way outside of the church where people can love and give to others and live a life of happiness and freedom for Jesus that's not connected to religion. So I think there was a lot of hippies that had never heard anything like that before, detaching spirituality from religion. So it was very attractive to a lot of people. His kids would sing and they would take their guitars on the beach and just sing songs of love and salvation and meaning and fulfillment to people. And it was really exciting at that time. So he just started to amass this gathering of hippies and he would preach in the night in nightclubs. 
And it started this big movement. And pretty soon he had so many hippies that he had to start sending them all over the world. So he wrote out the entire structure and system for how to start your own home and how to get it running. And then he taught them how to enroll other people. They would take their guitars and they'd go sing for people and they'd ask them if they wanted to receive Jesus in their heart and then ask them if they wanted to join their home. And it was a really attractive thing at that time. I mean, there was a lot of people that were in that place that were looking and they wanted to live in community. They wanted to be living a life of service and of meaning. And so it wasn't just him that was recruiting. It was all the people that believed in it and wanted to attract more people. And it just grew so quickly. But if you don't take heed, prepare to meet your His intention when he started out was pure. I think he really just wanted people to find meaning in their life and find Jesus. And that was the only route he knew how to teach people was through Christianity, but outside of the church. And it just shows what happens when someone is in power for that long and their leadership is unquestioned and people are treating them like a god or like a prophet and they can't do anything wrong and there's no checks and balances system. It just leads to absolute corruption. And that's what happened. It just completely devolved. Do you think everyone is susceptible to that? Do you think everyone who's put in that position of power is susceptible to believing that they're a god and that they get to control others? Or do you think there was something about him specifically, something in his disposition, something in his being that made him like that? What I'm asking is, do you think he was wired that way? I don't think anyone is susceptible to anything. Like, I don't think that there's one size fits all for everyone. That just doesn't exist. But I do think that there is a massive tendency towards that. Like there's always going to be an outlier, but the ego operates and feeds off of certain elements, power, fame, money, control. And that is if if it goes unchecked can lead to that and oftentimes does. I do think that there were things that played a role like unresolved trauma with his mother and the way that he was raised and anger that he had. And that usually starts to come out and play out later on in life and is exacerbated and heightened when given these outside elements of power or inflation for the ego. So it'll start to play out. But yeah, I mean, the shadow will grow and get bigger if it's unchecked. And that's definitely what happened with him. But I do think that many people can be susceptible to that. Very interesting. Oh, Olivia Eden, you're taking almost, I feel like, an anthropological viewpoint to this experience in your life. It's very interesting to me how you're able to talk about it. You are very resilient, very strong, very focused on seeing the positives of what happened to you. How did you get to this point? How was your journey in arriving here? I do have some questions, some more questions, of course, about what happened to you. But I mean, you went through a hellfire. You went through, I feel like, one of the darkest experiences someone can have in our modern world. And yet, sitting across from me, you've not flinched one time in talking to me. There's been no point where I've gone, oh, she looks uncomfortable. I should rein it back. You just seem very calm and collected. Tell me about that. Well, I want to first attribute that to my mother and how resilient she was and how she just had so much faith, even when we would go through the darkest of times and dark nights. And she just was so positive. And there is a point of like where positivity becomes destructive because you're not actually feeling what you're supposed to experience. 
but she got us through some of the hardest times by herself as a single mother. And so witnessing her strength and her resilience definitely gave me that as part of my character. But beyond that, I would say that a powerful mindset like recognizing that there's perfection in everything that happens, that if you can really look at the things that have happened and how it has made you a wiser, stronger, more compassionate or humble person, then you can let go of all of the emotional charge or resentment or anger or bitterness or grief or entitlement, all the things that keep you within that victim mindset and keep you stuck. I have to ask, how do you feel when you meet people who have a victim mindset? They're everywhere. What happens in your mind when you meet them? Before I confronted my own victim within me, before I acknowledged her, before I honored her, I couldn't stand people in their victim mindset. It brought out a jackal in me that just wanted to like stomp on them. It was like weakness. It just felt repellent to me. Like I had very little compassion for them because I had very little compassion for myself. And I remember there was this one girl, she was like a living, walking human Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh and just like constant rain cloud (laughs) everywhere she went. And I swear to God, I just could not handle it. And it brought out this very mean side. And then when I got into medicine facilitation work, it was something I really had to face. Like, okay, it's hard for me to work with people in their victim consciousness. And so for a while there, I wouldn't because I was out of integrity working with them because I recognized I didn't have enough empathy or compassion for them and realized it was because I hadn't truly honored what I had gone through and gone and sat through in that victim mindset for myself, had something terrible happen that threw me into victim mindset. And had to experience it, you know, which I'm really thankful for because it gave me a lot more compassion and it's a work in progress. I still get bothered or triggered by people that are really in their victim. But I realize it's just part of the process. And sometimes people are stuck there and it's just as uncomfortable for them oftentimes as it is for other people. Did you ever shake this ear, girl? And did you don't laugh? This is a very serious subject, Olivia Eden. We're talking about cult. Ritual cult abuse. Did you ever shake the ear girl and be like, hey, I grew up in the children of God. What happened to you? Did you ever do that? She also grew up in it. And we actually lived together in Guatemala. She just brought that side out of me there. But then I knew her after she left, too. So, (laughs) yeah. No, I didn't say that because she totally knew. And that's what made it even worse. I came from the same place, you know, so it was much harder even to have any sort of compassion or empathy, which is totally unfair. She experienced things that I didn't experience and she had a very different mom than I had. So it was just it's harder. It's harder when you're not imprinted the same way. You're having a very different experience. Walk me through the timeline of how your mom got involved to you running away to Guatemala. You ran away when you were in Guatemala. I don't know. Start from the beginning. How did they get your mom in? And by each year until you left, just describe some milestones for me. You don't have to do it every year, but your first memory, maybe something that marked each year, you know, did you have birthdays? Were you invited to school events? Did you go to school? Probably not. I don't think you went to regular K through 12 school. You're shaking your head. No, of course you didn't. Just tell me, tell me what everything was like. We definitely lived in a bubble. We had schools within our commune. So it wasn't like a regular homeschool where you're having school by yourself with your parents, maybe. But we were having school by age group. So we had a Christian curriculum that we followed. I stood up to the teacher and told the class, I can't swallow this baloney about our past. Evolution really stinks. There's too many missing links. To believe all this is just too much to ask. Did Charlie make a monkey out of you? Do you think you should be living in a zoo? Don't you know that it's a lie? When it comes, your turn to die. You'll find out you're not a monkey, but a fool. So we would have school there. We definitely celebrated birthdays, but we usually would celebrate birthdays by zodiac sign. So we'd celebrate all the Cancers one month or all the Sagittariuses or all the Scorpios because we had so many people in our home. So everything was shared. Everything was communal. 
we also had major zodiac racism in our <laughs> in our group. Like the second question I would ask people after their name was what sign they were. And there was like the sign that no one wanted to be. There were the cool signs. And I was like always embarrassed by my sign. I, I'm a cancer. And that was one of the signs that you just didn't want to be because they were so emotional. And so I never wanted to say that I was a cancer. And I actually worked my whole life to be the opposite of what the cancers were supposed to be like. So that was like a big thing in our group was the zodiac signs. <laughs> my mom was recruited into the group by my older sister's dad. He actually FF'd her into the group, flirty fished her. If you're interested in what that means, you can Google it. There's a lot of information out there if you just type in flirty fishing children of God. In 1973, Berg introduced a practice he calls flirty fishing. His older daughter, Deborah, who left the cult in the late 70s, explains the term. Well, I get, yeah, I got the terminology from fishing, what Jesus said in the Bible, to go out and fish for men. And so she's going to use the women to fish for the men, to bring the men to the kingdom of God through flirting. And only the flirting was more than flirting. It was actually, you know, religious prostitution. According to Berg's daughter, Deborah, Berg himself has had an incestuous relationship with his other daughter, Faith, for years, although they both deny that's the case. In fact, a spokesman for Berg told 2020 that he does not advocate incest. Yet Deborah claims her father did approach her for sex, and that was the catalyst to her leaving the cult. My dad was just an evil personality that was not hearing from God at all. I had to quit looking at him as the man of my father, but as a, a leader of a worldwide movement who was destroying people's lives. So he basically did that right before the cutoff point when AIDS came around and David Bremberg decided it wasn't safe anymore to be having sex with people outside of the group. So he closed the ranks and then he completely changed the rules to protect and maintain the integrity and sexual freedom of the group. So you had to go through a six-month process to join. You had to get tested for STDs so that once you joined, you could have sex freely without worrying about that stuff. And you could go for the gold. That was really important. You weren't allowed to use condoms or anything like that, which is like textbook cult stuff. You know, you want to breed and procreate as much as possible. It's also Bible stuff. I mean, the Bible also says that. So the Bible was the original playbook for cult. We traveled around a lot. We were living in Guatemala. My older sister had already left and I was 15. I just graduated from high school and I was like, I'm out of here. I recruited some of my friends to get me fake papers that said I was 21 and could work in Guatemala even though I was American. And I dyed my hair and they came in the middle of the night and picked me up and I started working at a bar. I was just reckless and fearless and just determined to make my way outside of the group. And then got into some really scary situations. I was shot at a couple of times. I ended up in some really scary, sexually traumatic situations. I met a guy. He became my boyfriend. I was 15. He was like 17. I don't know. He was a little bit older. He was like 19. And he was a big partier and he liked coke. And so we would end up in really crazy parties. This one time we were like trying to find somewhere to crash or pass out on this like cold concrete. Because in Central America, a lot of the houses are just built with concrete floors. So it was like that house. They're like stone homes with concrete floors and they were cold because there's no heater or AC. So we're laying like with this super thin blanket on this cold hard floor and it just felt like a crack. I'm pretty sure people were smoking crack there. And all of a sudden we hear this banging on the door and it sounds like the fucking Hulk is outside of the door and it's obviously a belligerent drunk person. And then the door just comes crashing down and falls down right next to us and this gigantic drunk guy is standing there and it was 
super dangerous because like in that situation in Central America, you have no idea what's going to happen. He could knock Carlos out and rape me. Like those those are just like the things that would happen. It was so fucking petrifying. So there was a lot of crazy shit that just was happening. But I was just like, okay, this is life, I guess, outside of the group. I had no context for what life was supposed to be like outside of the group or what it should be like. But I knew that things were getting a little bit (laughs) a little bit sketchy, a little bit crunchy. And, you know, I was a bartender. I had my own place. And I think I was looking for another job. And I started to realize that my boyfriend, Carlos, he needed help, obviously had a problem with anger and rage and coke. And so I just remember thinking one time, like, oh, maybe he needs Jesus, even though I had completely rejected it. I was like, maybe the family can help him. And I hadn't talked to my mom in a while. I mean, not since I left. So it'd been like six months or something. So I called the home and I could tell she was just so thankful to hear from me, but also just desperately not wanting to hang up the phone in case she never spoke to me again. And she was like, please come and visit. And I was like, okay, well, we'll go up there and visit you guys. So we hitchhiked all the way up there, up to the mountain because our home was in the mountains. And we get there and one of the shepherds of the home He was like, hey, Olivia, God told me to play the song for you. And so we're sitting down and he starts playing the song. And as soon as he starts strumming the guitar, I have this visceral experience. The only other experience I've had like that was the first time I ever took MDMA. My heart just opened, burst open. I was flooded with unconditional love. I started crying and I had this lightning bolt realization that I was supposed to be of service to people for the rest of my life. It's like you're hit over the head with your sense of purpose. So I told Carlos, I was like, hey, I'm rejoining. I'm not going back. And I'm just going to go back and pack my stuff. And then I'm going to rejoin. And he was like, what? Oh, my God. We were just supposed to go visit. Like, what do you mean? He tried to physically stop me. And I was like, no, I don't care. I know what I'm supposed to do. So I rejoined. And I had this complete metanoia. I was so into being in family and telling people about Jesus and bringing people light and hope because in my mind, I'm like, the people out there are lost and and it's scary out there. There's just so much danger and so much trauma. People need an answer. They need hope and connection. And I was so determined to bring that to people. So I'm going to ask you more serious questions, but I have two silly ones. I just want to know. First, what color did you dye your hair? I dyed it black, which is silly because my hair is already dark. What was the song he played for you? So the song was called No Miras Atras, which means don't look back. It goes like, don't look back, look away, my love, look away. It was like this calling home. That's what it felt like. Don't look back to the darkness is how I experienced that song. Very interesting. Don't look back, my dear. Don't look back to the darkness. And you're like, okay, I heard that song. I'm going to go back to the dark cult. That was what that song said to you. <laughs> you were like, okay, escaped, hitchhiked, left in the middle of the night. I come back to visit. You're playing a song telling me not to go to the darkness. My heart opens and I'm going back into the darkness. That was what happened? Essentially, except for that I felt this light ignite within me. So it's like I became the light in my life and in other people's life for a while. I felt this inspiration. I was so filled with a sense of purpose that it inspired all the young people to want to also get on board. And we would go to the Central Park in Antigua, which is a city, this really famous city right outside of Guatemala City. And we would perform and sing and dance only this time I really wanted to and we would have these incredible conversations with people and we were really connecting
I felt so connected to my purpose and to people, which now I mean, I'm like, I'm not telling people about Jesus because I have a much broader view of the world and spirituality. But the value that we were bringing people was that we were helping them to feel seen and touch like connecting with people like they were not used to being connected with. I think loneliness is a massive problem that the world is experiencing right now. But it's not just now. Loneliness has been a problem for a long time. And there's so many people living their lives completely disconnected in autopilot. And for them to just come and experience the gift of song and hugs and they felt touched by it, you know. So I don't regret that period of my life. It was one of the best times of my life, even if we were using a method that I'm not fully in agreement with right now, if that makes sense. So you made two exits from the group. So I made two exits from the group. I had been considered a wild child before I left, really rebellious, destructive, the rotten apple. They wanted to like keep the young people away from me because I was so strong headed. They had a special program on the TV last night explaining calmly why these things must be done right. They say their new computer is the way to control. But what they didn't say is that it cost your soul. Kathy, don't go to the supermarket today. Don't go, Kathy, don't go. And then when I returned, it was for the good. But I guess they were always a little wary of me. And at one point they told me I had a demon of seduction that I was possessed by because I guess they could see the pull that I could have on men, especially the older men in the homes. And what ended up happening is one of the older men had me touch him. And that was against the rules because I was still 16. Of course, I had already experienced a lot of sexual trauma with older men. So for me, it was like I didn't even recognize it as sexual trauma. I didn't recognize what I had experienced outside the group of sexual trauma either. I was just like, I guess this is what happens with people. And I didn't know how to say no. And so they put me on probation for breaking the rules. And then I was treated like a pariah after that. I was looked down on for tempting the older men astray and it was really discouraging for me because all I wanted to do was tell people about Jesus and do what we were supposed to do as missionaries. So I left Mexico and it just became a string of really bad events. I ended up in one bad home after the other where they were using us to make money and the corruption in Mexico City was just really, really systemic at that point. All of the adults were just in on it, basically, which is like, let's, you know, make as much money as we can using the young people. And that nobody was really in it for why people had joined the group in the first place. And a lot of the young people were leaving. And I just kept getting more and more disillusioned with each day that passed. So I decided I was 17. I was living in a really abusive home and I decided that I was going to open up my own home because I had had such a powerful experience when I rejoined with that song that I was like, I can't leave the group again. I'm supposed to be living a life of purpose for people to help people. So the only way I could see was to open up my own home where I could choose the people that I was going to live with and we could choose the type of leadership we were going to have. So I got on a bus and I went to Chicago. It took me three days to get there and I raised $10,000 in six weeks to open up a home in Mexico in, in Sayulita. And after that, the people that were supposed to come with me told me that they couldn't come anymore. It was like three or four other young people. So I ended up not knowing what to do. I had this money, went back to Guatemala to visit my mom. The adults in her home figured out a way to take the money from me that I had raised and then I went back to Mexico City to give it one more shot. And then the home I was in, it was just awful. They were the leaders of all of Mexico and Central America. And I could just see their corruption and their abuse of power. And I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So I left and I came to Austin at 19. How old are you now? 35. We love a native Austinite. Yeah, I've been here for a while. I love Austin. I also lived here when I was younger, when I was like eight. And then again, when I was 10. So I have a few questions. I need to stop saying that. I always have a few questions. You say that you were strong-headed and you were rebellious as a child. 
and that you started to realize that there were quite a few things that were awry. When did you realize that something was wrong? When did you really assess your surroundings and say, I don't think this is how life is supposed to be? How old were you and what was the event? I mean, it's hard to say because I mean, I might have had that realization periodically, but I didn't know anything different. I think it had to have been after I had already run away and I landed in Mexico City in that home that was a mom and pop shop. And it was so obvious that they weren't operating the way that they were supposed to. The guy was cussing at us every morning and just demanding that we make a certain amount of money. There was no love. There was no encouragement. We were like literal slaves. So that's when things were really dark. And I was like, this is not how it's supposed to be. I didn't attribute that to the whole group. I didn't realize that the group had so many things wrong with it until much later in life, maybe like five years ago or the first time I did MDMA therapy, did I truly understand all the wrong things that were a part of the group. When did you decide you were going to run away? I knew I wanted to run away after I graduated. And I just started looking for my way out. So whenever I could, I would sneak away. So we would go to this one really cute area in Guatemala City where there's little restaurants and bars. One of the ways that we would raise money for the home was by face painting. It's like a really common fundraising strategy for a lot of homes all over the world was making balloons and face painting. So I'd go with my mom a lot to face paint or one of the other aunties or uncles in the home. And so there was this one little restaurant bar where these guys would be standing out that worked outside of the bar. And I thought one of them was really cute. I was extremely boy crazy ever since I was like 10. I think I got my period when I was 10 years old and like that was all I could think about. So I would ask my mom, okay, can I go get some like water or soda or I need to go to the bathroom? And I would use those opportunities because those were the only moments that we weren't supervised. It was like you were constantly being supervised outside of the home. So if you were outside in the world, you were being watched unless you were very crafty and had to go to the bathroom several times. So I would go and then I would just talk to them and I got one of their numbers, I think, and we would have to sneak phone calls in our home. And so I just started making contact with them and slowly telling them my story and enrolling them to help me to get out. And one of them really liked me and he had this crush on me and he was like, okay, I'm going to get my friend and I'm going to get you a job here at this bar and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I wrote a letter to my mom. I waited for the adults movie night. They had one movie night a week where all the adults would get together and they would watch a movie. That was the only time we had a little bit of freedom. And I had the leader's son go to his room, grab the key and bring it to me so that we could sneak out. Otherwise, the gates were locked. There was barbed wire on the fence. It was hard to get out unless you actually had the key. They came and picked me up and yeah, the rest is history. Here concludes the first act of Rising Up from the Ashes of the Children of God Cole by A Walk with Olivia Eden, The Escape. You've just heard an exposition on her childhood, as well as how she experienced her world. Got a little scary, right? Well, you know, her story should show you that your mindset can really change everything about how you experience life. Next weekend, we'll release the second act, The Confrontation, or How the World Experienced Olivia Eden. Until next time...